You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and if you were up at 5 o'clock like I was, you would have seen a massive full moon. It was the most glorious reason for being up at that time in the morning besides getting here to uh, present the program. And uh, today we're uh, going to uh, be talking to uh, first up, we're going to be talking to Gail Osborne from the Wombat Forest Care because they've had a win in uh, the uh, in the law uh, in the uh, courts to stop uh, big forests from uh, uh, increasing their vandalism in our native forests. Uh, this is good news. Uh, uh, this is at the same time as the Climate Council is telling us that uh, the 740 fossil fuel projects that have just been uh, waved through are showing that the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act is failing to shield Australia's unique wildlife and iconic natural places from uh, the catastrophic impact of climate change. So it's nice to hear that there's some good news on the horizon. Uh, We're going to hear from Pieta uh, Pieta Farrell about the NICA Fringe Circus Hub, that's the National Institute of Circus Arts, home of circus for Melbourne Fringe Festival 2023. Uh, We're going to talk uh, to Tom Ballard. Yes, no, a comedy lecture. Tom Ballard deploys jokes and funny pictures to blast through the history of the Australian referenda problem, our difficulty to uh, get our head around the politics of referenda, uh, and uh, which, of course, is coming up on the 14th of October. Uh, we're going to follow that up with a uh, This Is The Week That Was, and uh, we're going to talk to Don Sutherland about the uh, trials and tribulations of uh, going around being uh, promoting the yes vote uh, in Tasmania. But before we do, a uh, announcement. Hey, you all out there? Let's join the National Day of Action to stop black deaths in custody. 1pm Saturday the 7th of October at the State Library of Victoria. We need to implement the recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody now. You say... You respect country and you believe in black justice, then you turn up because we have an opportunity on the 7th of October to push this government to implement recommendations that will keep our people alive. For more information, go to 
blacksovereignmovement.com. That's B-L-A-K sovereignmovement.com. Black Sovereign Movement in a street CR supporter. That's what I say. Is this what we gotta go through every day? To all of those still breathing, I'm feeling what you know And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And we've got Gail Osborne on the line. G'day, Gail, how are you? Good, good morning. Good yes. morning, yeah. And uh, fantastic win for you guys at uh, Wombat Forest Care. It's been a long battle, hasn't it? Well, yes, but this is, this is just such a small step. It's an interim injunction. We now have to go back to court on the 31st of October to seek an actual injunction. And then, of course, there'd be a court case. So it's a long haul, and but a great first step. And our, and our lawyers are really confident that we have a good case. So yes. So so that. so tell tell our listeners what's at stake. What 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 are you fighting for here? Well, we're saying that big forests who are legally required to conduct comprehensive surveys for threatened species haven't done that. They've done some surveys but they're not comprehensive so in a case like this it's just not good enough for us to say they haven't done them and you have to prove you have we then have to get expert opinion from you know university professors and people like that to show how they should have surveyed and so it's quite quite big and quite complicated and for us it's a massive learning experience yeah it would be yeah uh it's uh, interesting because we know that uh, uh old growth forest is supposed to be uh, a moratorium on uh logging old growth forest in victoria it's uh, more of a complicated thing than most people think uh it's supposed to happen in january uh 2024 but um wombat state forest is under uh the pump because it's they gave them um uh an opening with harvesting uh designated as a salvage operation after yes. a, yeah can you explain what's going on there yes so so the wombat is um a state forest and state forests are managed for their resources. So logging and mining are look, accepted practices in state forests. And the wombat was incredibly overlogged and overmined right back by sort of 1890. And so we don't have any old growth. The whole forest went. Yep. We've got... 100-year-old, 140-year-old regrowth. But it's surprising just how many threatened species we have. Um, so we've got powerful owls. We've got a massive population of greater gliders, surprisingly. And in the last 
couple of years, um, some scientists discovered that we have mountain skinks. So they're an endangered species that was only thought to occur in alpine areas and at quite low numbers. And it turns out that in the wombat, we have really good populations. And there's some genetic testing happening at the moment to see how our population's placed. So it's a pretty amazing forest, particularly since it isn't old growth. And then we had that wind event. and That was in you know, 2021. Of, that's right, in 2021. Um, and it's affected, you know, a couple of thousand, maybe three, four thousand hectares of forest. And then we had big forests come in and do some massive salvage operations, even though, you know, many scientists, like people like David Lindemeyer, say this is about the worst thing you can do. And not only did they salvage, but they um, compacted the soil, you know, massive machinery, took away the log sections, which aren't the fire risk, and left behind massive piles of bark and branches. So it's been quite destructive. Um, but it wasn't until other, other environment groups had winds in the course that showed that um, Vic Forests have to survey, adequ- you know, do adequate surveys for threatened species. So it wasn't until we got all that happening that we felt confident that we could bring a case using the same principles. Yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, uh, just before we leave the, uh, um, the the harvesting, I was interested in the fact that they moved from um, uh, getting rid of uh, salvage logs to uh, allowing commercial firewood collection. Um, now, we've had that for a long time, the yeah. commercial firewood. So... Back in 2006, um, the last the last timber mill that had a, a licence took a package under the Brucks government. Yep. And since that time, we've not had saw log harvesting. And then we had um, a Victorian Environment Assessment Council review of the forest, and they've recommended um, national park, a uh, new national park, and some regional parks. And Vic Forest, at that point, made an undertaking that they wouldn't do saw log harvesting, so they won't be cutting down trees yep, for understood. saw logs. But right through that time, we've always had these commercial firewood coops that have been thinning of the forest. Yep. They've not been great. Some of them have been quite destructive, and others have been sort of okay. But we were pretty well... We stopped trying to fight those commercial firewood coops and put all our energy into getting the VIAC process. And now to get the National Park... The government says we will get a new Wombat Loderdurg National Park. They said that in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. So but it's, been, but like it, it, it's a race against time, isn't it, really? Yes, yes. Yes, because they're surveying at the moment for the park and we understand that it should be legislated um, sometime next year, but absolutely no idea whether that's early next year or late next year or 
whether it will actually ever ha- you know it has to go through parliament so yeah, yeah. so so you, you 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 as a um, community group are holding up uh, the wall against uh, the attack on the forest through this legal action, aren't you? You know, this is what yes, you're doing. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I think that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us uh, how you experienced it as a community group, because this is a big deal, really. Sorry? I, missed, uh, I mean, uh, how do you experience doing such a coordinated effort against using uh, legal instruments? Have you had support from other groups? Oh, yes. Yes, it's massive. It's massive, the support we've had. Um, so we're, we're part of the Victorian Forest Alliance and um, and also our barrister has already fought cases before, so we we feel totally supported. And then Wombat Forest Care's got around 200 members and, and a heap more supporters. You know, we've been going since 2006. Well, before that, we were still we were around, but we incorporated in 2006. So, you know, the group feels locally supported and then we feel supported by, you know, people in as far away as East Gippsland, you know, Jill Redwood, all those people are, have been so helpful um, and supportive, yes. It's, it's great. Um, so give our listeners the dates again. So the injunction goes till when? Temporary injunction? Only till the 31st of October. Okay. So we're scrambling to get all our experts lined up and ready to go. And there's dates that we have to have documentation to Vic Forest and then dates that they have to have documentation back. So it's, a month's not very long. When, no, no, no. You have to this. keep an eye on the ball and and yes, uh, make sure that everything's done happen. in order. Well, the legal team, yeah, the legal team do. I'm just been staggered by how much work they do for us. You know, like just how much has to be filed, how much has to be, you know, perfect, and who, how they find people to give that expert opinion, and then what it looks like. It's amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Well, you're amazing. You guys are my heroes, I've decided. Um, thank you very much for your work and uh, keep up the good fight, mate. How can people oh, find... Thank you. Yeah, and how can people find out more about it? You've got a website? Uh, uh, well, probably our Facebook page, which cool. is Wombat Online. I think that's the, the best way to see what we're doing. Yeah, great. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Gail. Have oh, a good thank weekend. You. Oh, thank you. Bye. Bye. Um, that was Gail Osborne. She's from Wombat Forest Care, giving us an update on the fight for the forest. Uh, we're going to play a, a song by a person called Jackie Marshall, Breathe, Little One. And uh, it's from a film called um, Three Chords and the Truth. They've got a screening at Sun Theatre on October the 6th. It's part of their national uh, theatrical release. And it's a great film. It's got a Q&A of, uh, with the director and others on that uh, Friday. So get along and listen.
Sweets that uh, that's uh, part of uh, that's Jackie Marshall, uh, breathe little one, and it's uh, part of a film that's on uh, on at the Sun Cinema on Friday, October the sixth. Uh, a Q and A with the director and others uh, go along. It uh, would uh, be much appreciated. Great, great film, actually, great film. We're going to move right along to an interview I did with Pieta. 
uh, Farrell. She's from the National Institute of Circus Arts, home of Circus for Melbourne Fringe Festival 2023. That's the NICA Fringe Hub, Circus Hub. And uh, before we uh, do this, I would like to tell you that uh, I've got a double pass to two of the uh, shows that are on during the uh, Fringe Circus Hub. And I'm in the later interview with Tom Ballard, I've got a, a double pass to his show. Now, listen to these instructions. If you are interested, the first three callers can get a double pass, but you have to ring after the program because, of course, I'm all here on my lonesome and you have to ring me uh, after nine in that first half hour after the show and you have to ring 03 9419 if you are interested in double passes to these fabulous shows. Here we go, Pieta Farrell. Well, thanks very much for coming in and having a chat with me, Pieta. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the uh, role that you play at NICA? Sure. I'm the producer at the National Institute for the Circus Arts in Pran this year for the Melbourne Fringe Hub, which we're very excited to be holding and presenting. So we've partnered with uh, Melbourne Fringe to be the Circus Hub and City of Stoddington, who are also doing a lot of circus over in Pran. Um, yeah, we're thrilled to have the five shows that we've got in NICA. Some of them are full of alumni, which is also great to welcome them back to NICA. Um, but this year, yeah, we'll be holding those shows from the 5th to the 21st of October. And it's really quite extraordinary to me because um, recently I went to the um, the second year uh, 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 within these walls. And what I realised is that circus is so much more than just uh, tumbling and magic, isn't it? Oh, fantastic. I love that you've said that. Yes, I think that people within the circus industry have been trying to change and update people's attitudes to circus um, for a while now. And what we would call that is contemporary circus. And the uh, the second years and the third years are doing fantastically this year. So we've got the third years showcase show as part of the Melbourne Fringe Hub. Well, um, I really, it was just so extraordinary. It was actually a little bit like watching Hieronymus Bosch's paintings come to life, that particular show. And I I guess that in a way it's a bit of a doffing of the hat to Circus Oz and a whole range of other um, and modern circuses in the Australian context. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the global context as well. I've just <clears throat> come back from Edinburgh Fringe and there's a lot of contemporary circus um, over there. I saw um, Australian companies such as Circa there as well as some independents being um, produced and um, directed by fabulous like feminist performance artists. They're really breaking down the ideas of what circus is and what feminist theatre is as well. Some of it's funny, some of it's you know, heart-wrenching, um, some of it's just one skill in it rather than a whole troop but uh yeah there's some fantastic um things being shaken up i would say within the circus industry and talking about individual uh attributes in terms of skills some performers just like different types of things yeah 
they just like doing different types of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think within like NICA with the undergrad degree, you do have to do a full array of skills and your training is always going to have that foundation of multiple um, skill sets and and um, strengths. But when you find your skill, you know, when you find that apparatus or that act or that particular, um, yeah, artistry that really calls you in that's when you start to focus in and you can really specialize in that particular trick or that particular um, apparatus because it's very expressive isn't it yeah it can be absolutely and I think what that's what we're seeing with contemporary circus now it's not so much ta-da that's the trick it's really woven into artistry and choreography and um, representing emotions or expressing emotions and as you were saying like bringing imagery to life so if it's an artwork or if it's a story um, that circus is absolutely able to do that just like dance can or just like spoken word can yeah, and, and it's got this added extra where the audience is just absolutely uh, breath taken away by the actual physicality of a uh, a move. You know, you go, oh, my God, someone actually did that. Absolutely. I would say similarly to dance, these are athletes. Yeah, they are. It's quite extraordinary. Um, tell us about the actual collection of shows that are on. Sure. So we've got two premieres, which we're very excited about. Apricity by Cassis Creations is a world premiere and they received some funding from the Melbourne Fringe Festival um, to be commissioned to develop this work. And then also they're part of the Pulse program for Melbourne Fringe. Cassis Creations are a Queensland-based company. They've done spectacular work over in Edinburgh over the years and up in Queensland. And we're really happy to welcome them to NICA for this world premiere. So that's a Prisidy 11th to the 21st And of what's that about? Uh, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't actually say what it's about necessarily, but it is another example of contemporary circus as we've been talking about. Um, beautiful imagery. I know that they've got candles. There's different apparatus that they use from um, trapeze and one of them does the headstand trapeze um, as well to acrobatics, to chair stands. Um, so we'll have to wait and see together. Yeah, yeah, because it, <laughs> it says it illuminates the power of human connection in times of darkness. Yeah, so that's what they started with and then they've used that throughout their rehearsal and development process. So I'm yet to see. I'm very excited. The um, other premiere that we have is Alienation by Jake Silvestro. It was also um, supported by the city of Stonington. And so Jake works up at the um, Fruit Fly Circus in Albury, Wodonga, and he's been rehearsing and developing the show up there. It's had a, one showing at the Canberra Theatre Centre, but then we'll be having the premiere season for Melbourne down here for the Melbourne Fringe. That starts on the 5th of October through to the 18th. Uh, yeah, and word. he incorporates <laughs> acrobatics, dance and roller, and roller skates. skates. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. lots of skills coming through from there. And also Seer Wheel, the German wheel. Tell me about that. What's that? The German wheel, it's um, a human-sized wheel, yeah. metal <laughs> wheel. And then it spins and around. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool. fantastic. Okay. And go on. There's a couple of others. Yeah, so Headcount, which is, as I mentioned before, the third year showcase, that is on the 6th and 7th of um, October. Very excited to see. It's more like a cabaret vaudeville-style circus um, show. Um, of the third-year students who are all smashing it as well. They're really coming into their own. Um, and then we've got FOCA, which is presented by the Melbourne Fringe Festival and the Ministry of Culture Taiwan. So we're very excited to have this Taiwanese company, um, Formosa Circus Arts, coming over from Taiwan. They're doing another um, all-ages free show 
in Federation Square, I'm pretty sure it is, and then the season with us. So they're just doing four nights at NICA at 9pm, the 11th, 12th, 13th and 14th. Um, I feel like when I read the blurb, it reminds me of um, Squid Game, mm-hmm. and which kind of scares me. <laughs> one hand um but leaning into that kind of the childhood games and and what was the last game do you remember that you actually played a, a game for the last time oh yeah okay all right yeah Your childhood um and then the final one is the dumb detectives in Cirque Noir so they're all alumni which we're really excited about um the dummies core is a world famous I just met up with Jamie who's the director in Edinburgh and they're on tour around the UK at the moment with their kids show and they've got this um, show with the cast here in Melbourne um, as part of Melbourne Fringe Dumb Detectives so yeah it should be great it's more like a vaudeville um, cabaret show as well I would say rather than the contemporary circus that we were mentioning before Um, they have um, costumes on, kind of like detectives, yeah. I guess. I mean, it's a, it's a very refreshing kind of uh, thing to go to and I suppose that's what Fringe does. It teases out all these wonderful uh, ideas that uh, people have got uh, incubating and it gives them a chance to actually put them out there for the uh, public. Uh, and also for the public, it's, like I said, it's a refreshing kind of uh uh, approach to theatre that's uh, so different from, you know, the idea of uh, dry, sit still, keep yourself uh, good, nice while you're dealing with uh, something that's, uh, you know, uh, a highbrow, really. Absolutely. I think that's the great space that circus can live in, kind of like comedy is breaking that fourth wall as much as it's a very... Um, difficult art form and there's a lot of skill associated and sometimes there's danger which is very exciting and has the audience on the edge of their seats that it can really lean into that more vaudevillian and um, cabaret comedy world as well as the high art. Now um, just as a matter of interest uh, have you uh, seen them develop these shows in any sense of the word how does it how do they do it? In terms of the rehearsal process, some of them work with lighting designers, um, choreographers and um, musical directors or composers. So I know that um, Jake, for example, has been up in Albury working with a composer. So as they're unfolding the choreography, the composer is also looking at what's happening and starting to create the music around that. So there'll be influences and inspiration and they'll start from there and then move on and it will develop. Similarly, Apricity has been an idea for Jesse Scott for about eight years and now with this funding, he's actually been able to bring that to fruition, which is really exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. I mean, I can't get it across to people enough that uh, the experience of this uh uh, theatre is really quite exciting and the fact that it's happening in Melbourne and you can buy a ticket is just so great. Um, how do people find out about the program and be able to scan it and also buy tickets? Sure, it's all on the Melbourne Fringe Festival website, um, melbournefringe.com.au and um, tickets are available there. They've been having flash sales, which has been um, going really well um, and we're also putting it all over our Instagram. So Nike Australia has the links up there as well and we're doing promotion for the different shows throughout the weeks. We'll have some more um, footage as well up there and images so you can get more of an idea of what the shows are at Nike. Yeah, great. Okay. Thanks very much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you for having me, Annie. You're listening to 3CR Radio. 
And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we were just talking to Pieta Farrell from the Nika Fringe Circus Hub and as I said there are double passes available, Alienation uh, 5th of October to the 14th, it's a one hour show 7.45pm and the other one that uh, I've got a double pass for is Head Count which is on the 6th and the 7th of October uh, and uh, you have to ring me after the show nine four one nine eight three seven seven if you're interested. Uh, and the other show that we've got a double pass for is Tom Ballard's show. G'day Tom, how are you? Good morning, Annie. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's uh, very exciting to have you on the show, especially since your show is all around yes, no, a comedy lecture. Uh, and uh, why you asked the question, why the hell uh, Australians are so frightened of referenda? Yes. Yes, well, we've only had 44 of them since Federation, and of them we've only said yes to constitutional change eight times, which is a really, really bad uh, success rate, right? Like, I think, I think I worked it out. Australian governments have a 1 in 17 chance of successfully getting a referendum up. I don't want to bum everybody out who's listening this morning, but I think everybody knows that in Australia where we really suck at changing our constitution, and the show is trying to sort of tease out exactly why that might be the case. Well, of course, there's the practicalities, which is that everybody in the country, every state has to get a majority. And, you know, that seems to be problematic. Yes, this is the double majority requirement that the founders very kindly put into the referendum in Section 128, where we're changing the Constitution. Majority vote across the country and four out of the six states have to vote yes in order for the change to go through. We've had about five referenda where the popular vote was successful. That is, majority of Australians voted yes to a reform, but because it didn't meet the state requirements, it was shot down. And I think the craziest one is in 1977, there was a change about simultaneous elections, the idea that you have the Senate and the House being having elections around a similar time. That was the general vibe of the reform. And 62% of Australians voted yes to that but only three out of the six states voted yes, so it got shot down. That's just unbelievable. I, that stinks. It's not, it's not democratic, right? And it's, it's like a really deliberate strategy put in by the founders of the writers of the Constitution to, I think, well, initially to protect the rights of the smaller colonies who would then become states so that there wouldn't be changing to the Constitution left, right and centre. But I think today we can look at that and go, that's, that's pretty silly. And actually, I did the math. You could get 100% of voters in Queensland, Victoria and uh, New South Wales you can get 100% of both the territories, uh, of all the voters there, 49% in Tasmania, South Australia and WA. So that represents about 15 million voters could all say yes to a proposal. But if 51% of WA, South Australia and Tasmania vote no, then it's not going to happen. Oh. That sucks. <laughs> sucks big time. That's yeah, my, it does. My position. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so all that education, uh, uh, year 11 legal studies and uh, graduation <laughs> from... <laughs> But no, not even graduating law at university has allowed you to see this. Yes, I studied Year 11 uh, Legal Studies. I did very well, thank you for asking. And then I studied law at Monash University for six weeks and then I dropped out. <laughs> but I've been on Wikipedia and I've listened to half a podcast and I've got some really funny pictures. And um, I've put together a show that, you know, is very juvenile. There's some uh, dick jokes, of course, for, for everybody to enjoy. But I've also tried to actually run people through the history of all the referendum change that was shot down and trying to explore why that's the case. And also, I guess, looking ahead to... What is it? Two weeks? Two weeks? Two weeks a day? When we yeah. have this big referendum on the voice to parliament? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, this, it's, I must say that um, it's pretty worrisome, the uh, uh, um, poison that has been promoted through this. Uh, well, well, actually, there's a, there's a um, equally unreal, uh, unbalanced uh, thing that's going on with uh, Murdoch Media. 74% of uh, their messages are uh, supporting the no vote. Uh, uh, when And as someone's pointed out to me, the percentage of people as polled that have a no preference appear to be like 27%. Oh, sure, yes. I mean, the way that this, this binary choice is presented to us, of course, means that, yes, if you have someone from the yes side on uh, your media program, chances are you are required or feel an obligation to uh, have someone represent the no case as well. And particularly when we know, based on the polling out there, particularly the First Nations people, that there's overwhelming support for the First, for the First Nations voice, that's also not representative. Of course, there is a progressive no vote within the First Nations community too, so that gets a little bit messy. But, yeah, I mean, throughout the history of all these changes, the idea of changing the Constitution has been presented as this terrible thing, like this really, really serious thing, and it's and the way the No campaign can fight against the change is to just terrify people about it, right, is to sow doubt. I mean, this slogan of if you don't know, vote no has been used many, many times uh, for various referenda. This is not a new thing that's been invented in 2023. This idea of terrifying people about the prospect of change and the consequences of changing things which is ridiculous, right? Like, we should be able to change our founding document. That's that's the whole point of a democracy. And, yeah, I'm going to say it. The guys in 1890s didn't have all the answers and, in fact, <laughs> were quite racist and were members of the ruling class and didn't know everything and don't have all the solutions for us in Australia in 2023. So being able to change that thing would actually be super handy. Yeah, well, actually, that's the focus of your show, really, isn't it? That a cha- people have got a morbid... Uh, uh, attitude towards change yeah look i mean there's, there's a general skepticism towards government being able to do anything or being able to change anything really and it, from a first nations perspective you can absolutely appreciate that right like mm. i'm i'm voting yes in the referenda that's my personal position i'm pretty critical of what the voice might be and i think it's kind of limited and you know i think to get true justice for first nations people in this country we are absolutely going to have to have a treaty but uh, you know, I completely understand why a lot of First Nations people look at a new body um, after all the failed and broken promises in this country for, well, since colonisation, really, and sort of say, I, I don't believe this is going to be a thing that's going to seriously change my life. But I just haven't been convinced by the progressive no case to say that if we vote no, that that's going to lead to anything better myself. That's my that's my personal opinion. But yeah, across the board, media, conservative forces, always trying to terrify people into the idea of changing anything um, even if it's something as simple as giving the Commonwealth government the power to legislate over a certain area of society, which would make total sense, like aviation or rents and prices or giving them the power to you know, legislate on industrial relations, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are the kind of reforms to increase social democracy over the 20th century that have been basically shot down in flames. Yeah. yeah, actually, it's funny because uh, I've actually done um, historical study of uh, that period of... Uh, uh, Australian, white Australian history. Uh, one of the massive uh, um, positives of white Australian history, which is, you know, one of the few positives of white Australian history, is that it's so short. 
so it's <laughs> <laughs> so it's possible to actually encapsulate it. And uh, that particular uh, conference of people in order to get the constitution was such a ragtag lot of people. And if people look at the constitution, it's only uh, several pages long. It's not very long. And the reason for why it's so short is because they couldn't get them to agree on anything. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's very limited. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's why it was so thought, limited. Right. Yes, and 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 also perhaps the yes, the conservative nature of of a bunch of those figures. I think Sir Samuel Griffith was like the big head honcho drafting guy, and he was much more inclined to follow the British example. Um, some other people, the more Republican folks, were much more interested in the U.S. Constitution and tried to get that in there. Yeah. yeah well, well I'll, I'll tell you something else. Uh, people uh, may may not realise this, but at that period of uh, uh, westernised history, uh, world history, Australia was a standout. You had the American uh, Constitution and the Australian Constitution, and that was it. Oh, as in like no other countries had written constitutions yeah. by that point? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, like we were, we, were, um, uh, we were out there, you know. It's a funny yeah. idea, but it's true. Yeah, I can't believe that the that England doesn't even have... They didn't bother to write all that stuff down. They're just vibing it. They're like a, a waiter at a restaurant just who says they can remember your order, but they haven't actually <laughs> written anything down. It's very strange. Yeah, have you done this show? Is this a new show? It's new for this year. I did two instances of it in Melbourne during the Comedy Festival back in um, March, April. And I just, yeah, I really loved doing it. I thought it was, you know... By not important, important sounds too grandiose. But I just really wanted to tour it more before the actual referenda, um, and so I've updated it. I've included a few uh, weirder moments from the actual campaign. It was seen in the past <laughs> couple of months. Pretty, from, pretty weird ones. <laughs> from Shaquille O'Neal to appearing with Albanese to Cabal saying no and then yes and then no to the wild stuff we've been hearing from Jacinta Namajupa Price and this kind of the, the bizarre. Designers of the no case. Yes, it's a, um, the idea that um, thank God uh, Philip arrived, or they wouldn't have had any food or water. Yes, yes. Famously, for sixty thousand years, Aboriginal people had no food or water. They were very peckish <laughs> and really parched when the cook rocked up. Apparently, I mean, good lord, it's 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 remarkable, right? And, and that is what I find particularly scary. Like, if you looked at the polling and this kind of structural disadvantage, you would have to say that it's more likely than not that the yes vote will not get up. Um, and I am really worried about what that will do to empowering, yeah, the racist right and those kind of ideas, this rejection of the recognition of our actual history in this country and, and what that means. It's kind of uh, kind of disturbing. Anyway, it's a very funny show, and everyone should come along. <laughs> well, that's your specialty, isn't it? Um, making um, unpalatable things very funny. I hope so. If I can't do that, then it's just a real bummer of an evening. But yeah. there are very funny pictures. And hopefully, yeah, people can laugh and learn at the same time. And, uh, yeah, they'll have a good night out at the Fringe. Yeah. Um, it was pointed out to me that you actually have uh, personal skin in the game, really. Uh, you and your partner uh, are a, a walking tribute to, to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to how people can get along if they actually try. <laughs> Powers of reconciliation, yes. Well, Gary Johns, who's a former Labour MP who's in the No campaign, he reckons that um, we don't need a voice because intermarrying between First Nations and non-First Nations people is proof that reconciliation has been achieved because, of course, people in marriages never have any arguments or any problems <laughs> with each other. But 
uh, yes, my boyfriend is a waka waka man, and um, and that's been really interesting. I mean, yes, he's an amazing person. I've learned a lot about um, his, his relationship to First Nations culture and his family history. I do, I do roast him a little bit in the uh, in the show, in that I asked him, "What do you think of the Voice?" a few months ago, and he said, "Oh, they're still making that show." So he hasn't, <laughs> he's totally engaged. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I think it's a really funny idea. You t- you turn on the TV and you sometimes see this crazy these people shouting out their their lungs, and you sort of think, oh goodness me, it's uh, the voice and the voice. Yeah, they really had the Madden brothers, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the way it goes. But yeah. um, yes, he's he's read more since then, and uh, we'll make an informed decision on October the fourteenth. I can guarantee that. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to me this morning. Thanks so much, Annie. Pleasure to talk to you. Cheers. Cheers. And that was Tom Bollard. And he's got this uh, show, Yes, No, a comedy lecture. And it's playing from the 4th to the 8th of October. It's at the Festival Hub at uh, Trades Hall, Solidarity Hall. Uh, And uh, like I said... Uh, there is uh, the opportunity for a double pass to Tom Ballard's show. If you give me a call, if you're the first one to ask for it, um, I have three double passes to three different shows, uh, 03-9419-8377. Ring me after this show at nine and I will answer your call. Yang go, 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 yang go
out there. Let's join the National Day of Action to stop black deaths in custody. 1pm Saturday the 7th of October at the State Library of Victoria. We need to implement the recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody now. You say you respect country and you believe in black justice, then you turn up because we have an opportunity on the 7th of October to push this government to implement recommendations that will keep our people alive. For more information, go to blacksovereignmovement.com. That's B-L-A-K sovereignmovement.com. Black Sovereign Movement is a street CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. A weak solidarity, Becky team listener, when a comment we made last week was even more pronounced this week. There's always a fly in paradise. It's not that caring employers are hard to please, always need more and more corporate welfare to make a killing, because they are committed to smaller government to keep government out of the way. And this week they were pleased with the government's new, quote, jobs plan, which mostly is the government paying the bill for the training of workers the caring business class needs. And yes, caring employers were quite pleased with that, but there's always a fly. But this positive initiative will be, quote, ruined by the caring business class industrial laws. The government is planning like same job, same pay. Casuals who aren't casuals not being treated as casuals. Worse, wage theft, a jailable offence. We can understand the poor caring employer's concerns. As the true blue Aussie Chamber of Profits exploded, any positives from the government's white paper will be overwhelmed by the damage from this backward-looking industrial relations changes. And caring business class shadow minister Angus Tailings and economists from all the right-wing think tanks agreed, proving the government's got this very, very wrong. As Angus accused, union-friendly workplace changes and all responsible practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all know progress can only be achieved by being union unfriendly. That's the balance, the sensible centre they all crave. And another fly-in, a tax bill aimed at getting same tax out of, or some tax out of multinationals was also attacked by the caring business class as having unforeseen consequences, presumably like they they might have to pay some. They weren't consulted, they complained, and quite properly too. We know that when the government wants to change laws for, say, armed robbery, it always consults the Armed Robbers and Murderers Union. But exciting news. Two weeks after filthy rich developer Tim Gurnamake more and more expressed his admiration for working people, in part by making lots of them not working people doll bludgers, he was snapped up by a he has snapped up a half hectare St Kilda Road site, quote, which he will transform into eight hundred million dollars of luxury apartments and high end retail in two towers. 
Tim told us he has had his eye on this site for more than a decade as he, quote, cut his teeth with another developer at a site directly opposite in 2008. So it is humbling to come full circle, he boasted humbly. And well, when we think of Tim, humility is the first word that springs to mind. In his thoughtful comments on the need for much, much higher unemployment, lower wages, higher productivity, workers knowing their place in the greater scheme of things, Tim also said he was sitting on 14 of the 30 development sites he owns across True Blue Aussie, and now says he will sit on this site until the time is ripe to make an appropriate killing. And I hear you've got a bit of advice for government to solve the housing crisis, Tim. Certainly. They must open up more land for development. Have to be critical of those thousands of Brisbane and Collingwood members complaining about not getting a ticket for this afternoon, especially those magpies who paid extra priority one, guaranteeing them a grand final ticket, who selfishly thought paying a premium to guarantee a grand final ticket meant they would be guaranteed a grand final ticket. The ever-efficient ticketing monopoly told them, among other reasons why they couldn't get a ticket, they didn't have enough in their accounts, which many wouldn't have if tickets were a million dollars, but they're not quite that high just yet. Small mistake. Although we hope they have all been charged a booking fee for the tickets they couldn't get, wasting the ticket monopoly's time, but... Their cruel selfishness was exposed by their attitude to those to whom a million dollars is pocket money, who were gifted the tickets, free tickets they could afford, with an afternoon of free gourmet food and fine wines and spirits thrown in. And and those supporters who follow their team week after week would deprive the filthy rich corporates of that opportunity, a chance to relax from an exhausting week of becoming filthy richer with a bit of networking around the room thrown in. They've seen their team week after week. Surely they can miss one game in the interest of the filthy rich. And we can be sure all the AFL Con mission will provide those filthy rich with helpers to answer their questions like, Who's playing? Uh, Which team is which? Uh, What's a free kick? Uh, What was that free for? They they have to put it through those big things, do they? And other indications of their love of the game. Presuming they watch any of it. So what are all those supporters who'll miss their first game of the year complaining about that they've seen all the others? For years, the ubiquitous Eddie McGuire, you poor, presided over Collingwood, and good to see Eddie showing his working-class broady roots this week at some function for the filthy rich, great minds and social wannabes like Eddie, who, like Tim Gurner, make more and more know what's good for this society. Eddie announcing that state big supremo, the pejorative dad, had resigned, and the whole room cheering and clapping. Bring on a caring business-class government. Now, we have our criticisms of the pejorative Dan, but we have nothing on the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which in page after page after page couldn't think of even one positive thing to say. A double spread of headlines over the years proving what a threat, what a disaster he had been. And after a decade of front-page, day-after-day attacking the pejorative Dan, there was no shortage of ammunition. And brickbats to those cruel critics envious of Lord Rupert's deep insights, 
who pointed out that after a decade or so of daily denunciations, the Socialists won every election with an increased majority, and the pejorative had resigned on his own terms. Hope this doesn't indicate Lord Rupert's influence has waned to the point of having no influence whatever. Good grief. People might start ignoring Lord Rupert and his usual lackey's objective reports and opinions and start believing that just maybe there is climate change, for instance. So far, the whopping sin has only had three days of telling us how irresponsible is the new big supremo. Oh, but of course, that is one a day. Her record has been a fondness for those huge projects governments love to announce with huge cost overruns, which could go to less sexy projects that would make life so much better. Oh, but of course, public housing, say, is not a government responsibility. Else we wouldn't have an announcement of trillions on the housing crisis, guaranteeing there will not be one public asset. Indeed, the remnants of public accommodation not yet privatised will be privatised, showing the government knows the solution to soaring and impossible costs of a roof over people's heads lies in the market, the private sector. What are the odds of Jacinta reversing that? She has announced she will not abandon the money-guzzling rail loop project, obviously aware that all that money on less sexy projects could provide immediate, fast improvements to the public transport system, as if it needs any improvements, of course. The housing package includes a brilliant panacea called the land lease system. Interesting, because when the private sector leases land, the lessee pays the owner the rent. But under this brainwave, the owner, the, the state, leases the land to the private sector and then pays the private sector the rent. And we wonder why the state's in deep debt. Subscribers to Lord Rupert's contribution to serious debate and divergent thought, facts distorted, will enjoy an even more balanced coverage now that Lord Rupert has appointed former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses to the board. My word, that'll do wonders for its objectivity, as Tiny was seen this week sharing a big laugh with Voice No campaigner Warren Munding the Waters at the National Press Club. And it would have been a side-splitting joke, because they're both very funny men. Warren iterated his no-co-conspirator Jacinta's assertion that colonisation has been just the best thing for terra nullius non-land non-people. Many true blue Aussies are supporting the voice because of misplaced guilt about Indigenous history, he told us. Told us a yes vote would take away traditional rights. The Turinolius non-land non-people will lose their traditional rights to having no traditional rights, he explained. Meanwhile, Institute of Public Very Private Affairs brilliant mind John Rosknokomi told us Jacinta is a potential big supremo, which, given they've thrown up Constable Peter Duffer, is an exciting possibility. Jacinta or Pete, the pen shakes over the ballot paper. On such cosmic choices, headline in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, nuclear trumps coal in the energy stakes. Now, with due respects to the Capitalist Review's daily push for nuclear energy, just not sure that nuclear and coal are the only choices.
a little bit of digging or perhaps less depending how we look at it and they might discover there are choices which don't destroy the planet one way or the other although must concede we must be wrong because great socialist environment minister tania pliba think their profits in approving the expansion of two beautiful don't be afraid of it coal mines said she was not satisfied it was likely to result in a net increase to greenhouse gas emissions or affect the extents to which the value of world heritage properties will be impacted by the physical effects of climate change. Goodness me, did she say climate change? And could Tania explain which bit of more and more coal is not likely to result in a net increase to greenhouse gas emissions? Well, she must know, because the government's committed to reducing that which it's increasing. On those wise people, I don't think anyone's missed the irony of Hayseed and Sheepshit Party former sports rorts minister Bridget McConsie leading the baying packet investigating alleged rorts at the airline which used to be our airline and just possibly the reason for her righteous baying by the socialist government. Finally, for a last word on the grand final, we've asked our expert commentator Michelle for her prediction. Uh, very interesting, Kevin. Both teams want the game to be played only on the right wing, making for a crowded game. And the socialist captain, Mr. Albin Uzi, wants the goalpost to have a yes sign across the top, and the caring business class team captain, Constable Duffer, wants a no sign. Very interesting, Kevin. Uh, and Michelle, a sensation. I hear there's going to be a moat around the Oval. Very interesting, Kevin. Just around the right wing, because no one will go anywhere near the left wing. It's an initiative of Mr. Maul's The Bad Guys, who will fill the moat with nuclear-powered submarines to protect the players from a threat somewhere in Asia, although he says he has no country in mind. Sensational. Uh, what are your final thoughts, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. Thank you, Michelle, for your deep insights. Well, that's it, listener. Good morning. This November, the Australian National Academy of Music presents a festival celebrating the music of pioneering American composer George Crumb. Across four thrilling performances, Crumb's dynamic and engaging music will be paired alongside music by Igor Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, Edgar Varese and more from the 23rd to the 25th of November at Abbotsford Convent. Find out more and book your tickets at anam.com.au. The Australian National Academy of Music is a 3CR supporter. And g'day, Don. How are you? Well, hello, Annie, and g'day to all your listeners. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was about time that we had a chat about the trials and tribulations of your work uh, promoting the Yes Vote in Tasmania. Tell us about what's been going on for you over the last month. It's about a month, isn't it? Yes, well, um, in some ways it's been longer than that, but uh, because um, in early... Um, 2018, I was fortunate enough to be uh, uh, introduced to the detail, if you like, 
of the process leading up to the Uluru Statement and its content in a wonderful uh, presentation uh, by Thomas Mayo. And so I've been a supporter, although in some respects critical, of uh, the yes um, for several years. And, of course, this year, just like everyone else who was a yes supporter, um, and those who are wondering at the moment about whether they should become a yes supporter, um, you know, I've been doing lots of more practical things uh, to encourage people in the community to vote yes. And that includes where I live these days, on the west bank of Kanamaluka, also known as Baymar River, uh, where there are a set of small country towns uh, who are, to some degree or another, perhaps beneath the surface, to some extent, quite visibly talking about uh, the referendum to one degree or another. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you set up a stall, didn't you, at one of the local markets? Yeah, well, we... We've been doing some basic education work using uh, trying to get face-to-face conversations, and that happens in a number of ways. But that's included in a nearby town having a stall in the shopping centre, and that has enabled us to get some face-to-face conversations, hang out leaflets and so on, all of the usual things that you do in a, uh, a campaign to get some progressive development in the society. And, of course, on the, on, when we go there, we go, we go to the Exeter market on Sunday... Um, a, a decent group of us going there with a stall to talk with people uh, to the extent they wish to about why a yes vote is so important. So how did that group begin? <laughs> we, well, we got started just by um, those of us who were uh, pro-yes just talking more and more with each other and building it out of that. And in the long session itself, there's, uh, just as there is across many other uh, regional cities and towns and so on, there are there is a very strong and growing uh, yes campaign. It's doing a terrific job, and all of it's through volunteer work. Yes, that, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, everybody has this. View. I mean, we're we're in. I'm in Melbourne, and people have this view of Tasmania as being basically a big country town. Uh, and uh, is that your experience? Um. No, because I think that sort of reduces the character of the place and it is a wonderful and exciting place uh, to live. That's what I'm finding anyway. Uh, Constantly And, of course, one of its distinctive features is a very profound Aboriginal history that goes back, you know, forty to 60,000 years, depending on what is known about um, various uh, clan and nation areas. Um, and... Um, and that, of course, also includes that since Whitefellow occupation, the British colonial occupation, uh, which was established through uh, one of the most powerful military campaigns ever seen on this content in the form of a regimental-based war uh, that recruited paramilitaries to attempt to wipe out um, the indigenous, the Aboriginal population. And so that's a big part of Tasmanian history. And the more that you uh, pay attention to it, you see the microcosm of all sorts of problems uh, in our society as it stands at the moment. Uh, That includes people who are desperately trying to unveil the truth of all of that, but at the same time, people who 
remain in deep denial that it ever happened, that there was such destruction of life. Essentially, in all of that, in Tasmania, is just, you know, the notion that um, uh, Aboriginal people and their, their society and their culture was wiped out is just not true. And uh, it's been a popular mythology for some years, and it's breaking apart well and truly these days, primarily through the efforts of the descendants of the people who were living here at the time that uh, Whitefellow occupation started. I'll tell you something interesting. Someone told me this last week that, I mean, this is just a sort of an oblique thing, but H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds was apparently based on what happened to the Tasmanian uh, Aboriginal people with the arrival of the Westerners. Did you know that? <laughs> That's an angle I've never heard of. No, I know. It's the curious thing that someone told me last week, and I thought, well, yeah, yeah it makes complete sense, really. We're, we're checking out uh, for the quiz nights, uh, but really important stuff are books uh, by Patsy Cameron, Auntie Patsy Cameron, and Cassandra Pybus recently with uh, the, bio the new biography of Truganini and then also the work of Henry Reynolds and others, uh, and great literature, including going back to a book called The Crows by Russell Drew uh, that um, describes um, the white-fellow attempt to... Uh, uh, colonial attempt to destroy uh, Aboriginal culture, which failed. Mm. And uh, not to mention I, the great I, film I, The Nightingale. Uh, well, I think there's some dimensions of it all covered there. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, but I think the interesting thing for me and my experience has been um, there's a number of angles. Firstly, uh, the polling for me, I think, is quite calculated. And also, and it is calculated to rupture and undermine the confidence of the Yes campaign and of the people on the ground seeking to uh, persuade a majority to vote yes. And uh, I think that, um, you know, it's, it, it, I don't know how big the effect of it is because I see the yes campaign growing and I see the no campaign running out of steam with two weeks to go. And I see this being very winnable, uh, even though the polls are trying to convince us that it isn't. And I think... Uh, Thomas Mayo yesterday said, um, uh, it was a great statement actually, he said something to the effect that whenever there is a struggle for the progressive development in society, uh, doubt sits on your shoulder and what you have to do is ignore it. And uh, I think he's dead right about that. We have to be more determined. Being hopeful is not enough. Being more determined than those who are organising the no-nonsense uh, is uh, what it's all about for us in these last two weeks. Um, yeah, one of the other things yeah. would be, uh, and I, you know, <laughs> anecdotal, anecdotes or, or casual conversations, even though I've had dozens of them, of course, are not a really great scientific way to approach it. Yeah, it's a called a straw poll, Don. It's called a straw yeah. poll. <laughs> My impression is that there is a prevailing ignorance in Australian society about the Constitution itself. Okay. And I think it's a serious problem uh, and is going to continue uh, 
has serious implications, I think, for ongoing uh, progressive left and socialist strategy, actually, that there is such ignorance. Um, and, 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 and that includes amongst yes voters. Uh, so, for example, uh, I've had conversations with yes supporters who struggle to deal with the no argument that uh, this change is divisive. Uh, they don't know until it's discussed that the inbuilt into the Constitution is a, a divisive race power already. Although the formulation in the Constitution can enable the Parliament to make laws that are the benefit of any particular race, accepting, you know, not just living with whether one likes to or not, the idea of whether the race is actually a valid concept, but that's, we have to deal with that. Yeah, 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 that's right. But the, but the, uh, the, the what the Constitution enables is for a government to make laws that are racist and to make laws that are not racist and for the benefit of any particular race. And the only examples of where that's been able to occur, of course, have been when liberal, liberal and national party governments have sought to make racist laws that have been against the desires and interests of the majority of Aboriginal people involved. That's exactly right. And there are two big examples of that, the Hindmarsh Island affair and, of course, uh, also the intervention. Yeah, the intervention. I mean, and these are these uh, laws that they put in cause people to die. It's an outrage. And it's funny, you know, because this idea that uh, it's divisive, it's very reminiscent of the US strategy to uh, say that it's undemocratic to have national health care. I mean, you know, you think it's an unarguable thing, but uh, but in actual fact, uh, public relations firms can actually turn uh, turn um, black into white and white into black. You know, yeah, polling helps to do that, as does the mainstream media, particularly the so-called progressive mainstream media like the AFP, which says that uh, balance requires fifty percent airtime for both sides. Uh, and so that lifts uh, once the no the no side had about the best twenty percent sympathy about six months ago, but that formula of equal uh, time has given an enormous pickup. It's like how dare they define balance as being a, 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 a position that only had ten, fifteen, twenty percent support at the most should get the same amount of coverage as a group that has uh, far more than that, majority support. And this, and this, is, this is an example that, uh, that that same example is uh, climate uh, denial, uh, change denialism, which had 0.05% um, uh, yes. uh, scientific backing, uh, and the majority of evidence that it was true, I mean, like overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. But then, oh no, the ABC must give to, to you know equal time to the, both arguments. It's a nonsense. It's it's basically Sky News TV 
uh, Sky News media methods being applied through the ABC. But there are two other points that I've been covering before we run out of time. The second thing is that another thing about the Constitution, as it stands, is that it already has provisions that give a voice to some parts of the population. The most important thing is the whole of the Constitution in its entirety and in some particular details gives the most powerful voice to the ruling class in the form of uh, the major corporations and their owners. It is a class document and it is such in general and in particular. So there is a thing in it, for example, that enables the parliament to make laws uh, relating to corporations. Uh, and uh, uh, that's where the, power, the rich and powerful, that's one particular aspect of the Constitution, which they have a voice which is far more powerful than any other part of the con Constitution. Once upon a time, workers were provided with a limited voice through what was called the Constitution, uh, the conciliation and arbitration power. Now, it's a bit more complicated to go into in detail, but it's quite simple to understand if there's time. But uh, So that particular uh, access to a voice, as limited as it was, had, was, of course, replaced with working people having to somehow or other find a voice for themselves through industrial relations laws that became based on the constitutional, on the corporation's power which was designed to advance the interests of corporations. So there is, there is aspects of the voice that are of a voice that are available to other parts of the Constitution. And our uh, Aboriginal people have every right, and logically, to struggle for a constitutional recognition uh, that also has a practical effect. Uh, and that's what we see going on. The other angle that I think is quite interesting is that, and it's sort of linked to this ignorance about the Constitution, is that uh, there, is a, there is a strong perception there that a big part of the no voters uh, is, uh, are cohorts from within the working class, in particular low-income uh, work, workers and their families, and also male tradespeople. I often run into conversations and even some commentary about that. The distinctive thing about that is that most of the polls don't tell us anything about that. I had a look at about nine different polls of what they're saying about the class composition of um, whether people are voting yes or no. And just about all of them, but one, well, all of them except one don't have anything to offer on that except supposition and innuendo and so on. The Redbridge poll uh, does make a modest effort to take that into account by looking, by polling for uh, whether people are yes or no according to their income levels. And uh, that tends to show... Now, for Lola, it's hard to work out for male tradespeople because the range of incomes for male tradespeople is quite big, so I can't really make any decent comment about that. But for low-income people, the pointer is this. 
that for taking low-income people as anyone on an income below the median uh, wage rate, that is the mid-level of wage rate, that's where most people are, that's the majority of the population, are below the median wage, is that the, the proportion of them who are fixed in a no position is less than, it's higher than we would like it to be, but it's less than for people who are in higher, on higher wage levels. And the potential in that cohort of people below median wage to become yes voters from being undecided or soft nosed is still quite strong. So we've got it. Anyone who is thinking that the problem is somehow in the and I'm parodying it this way, the ignorant working class need to kick up the bum because there is no evidence to say that that's valid. And the, ev the very modest evidence that is available says that it's probably not as true or as cut and dried. Well, <clears throat> that's interesting because it's very similar to the way the Liberals try to undermine the Labor vote by insinuating that one nation was the uh, purview of uh, exactly the same cohort that you're describing. Yeah, yeah. Now, and I'm it was, and it it uh, blew up in their face. Yeah, that's true. Now I'm not suggesting that there is no problem with those two parts of the working class, but uh, what it's suggesting to me is that uh, uh, workers in the cohorts are still thinking about the issues in their own way and it is quite possible for us who are in the yes camp to uh, encourage and persuade them to uh, vote yes on polling day and uh, I think that that's you know really where we're at is how determined are we going to be in the next two weeks and when we see that there are people from the progressive no camp who are reconsidering and even changing their mind, and from a critical point of view that is often usually quite legitimate, uh, saying that they're going to turn uh, vote yes is a pointer to what is possible. Um, the, the more we talk, the more we learn ourselves about how to talk about the Constitution, I think can be very helpful in the, what I call the verbal judo that goes on in these face-to-face -face conversations. Uh, and it enables us to also break apart any tendency towards, um, you know, a soft, if you not quite the right word, but a soft racist sort of no tendency that I think can be, can be turned. Um, some of these things are discussed in a brand new article by uh, Russell Morton in today's Saturday paper. He discusses some of this. But once again, his, co his commentary is actually quite insightful in parts. But once again, it's based on his particular interpretation of, um, of polling and focus groups. And there is no information about those. And secondly, he ignores the fluidity of 
the class composition of those who are undecided, those who are soft no's, and those who are yeses. Mm-hmm. I think this is... Uh, this All this means for me is that I am confident, and I'm with Thomas May on this, this is... This is winnable, and what a great step forward it would be if we are able to help create the new platform on which, from which working uh, Aboriginal people and those who wish to act in solidarity with them can pursue a better deal for them and their children into the future, and of course for the rescue of country, because more and more we are learning that Aboriginal traditions and culture have profound insights about the rescue of nature from the destruction of capitalist development. There are rich possibilities there. So I'll finish perhaps just with... um, uh, I will actually quote the exact words from Thomas Mayo's speech in Newcastle yesterday. He says... Ignore the shadow of doubt that might be sitting on your shoulder. They've been there whenever we have made progress. Believe in yourselves, your community, your country. We can and we will win this referendum. We can win that 30 to 40% who are undecided or soft-nosed in the next two weeks. On that note, Don, thank you very much. Thank you and best wishes to all of you. Happy campaigning. And that was Don Sutherland uh, campaigning for the yes vote down in Tasmania. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, We uh, spoke to Gail Osborne about the uh, temporary injunction on uh, logging at the uh, Wombat State Forest and what that means. We spoke to Pieta Farrell from the uh, NICA Fringe Circus Hub and uh, about the shows that are going on uh, down there from the 5th to the 20th for the uh, Fringe Festival. We spoke to Tom Ballard about his Fringe show, which is also focused on uh, Australia's uh, uh, aversion to change when it comes to referenda. Uh, His show is uh, running from the uh, 4th to the 8th uh, um, of October at uh, Solidarity Hall at Trades Hall. And we just spoke to Don Sutherland, as I said. Uh, there's a couple of there's three double passes. There's a double pass to uh, the alienation at uh, the um, uh, NICA. There's one for headspace, headcount, uh, and there's also a double pass to Tom Ballard's show. So if you want to give us a call uh, now that the show is coming to its end, and the number, if I can find it. If I can, with all my bits of paper here, here it is, 94198377. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with uh, Sherry Rich and Robbie Bundle singing Voices of Heart. Afraid to speak them 
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.